and take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, if you have, don't have a Bible, we have some in the chairs available in front of you, uh, or uh, you can, on the way out on the back, there should be some Bibles there too, but maybe someone nearby will share as you read along. It's important to follow along as we read God's Word and learn from it, Acts chapter 21. Now, I think almost every family has in that family a safety officer, um, and the safety officer's job is to make sure that everything is according to code within the family. Uh, in my family, we have uh, one such safety officer, and it's me. I'm the, I'm the one. Uh, you caught me. And, uh, and I'm the one who, who makes sure, you know, there's no, 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 no shoes on the steps, uh, that we pick up things, uh, so no tripping hazards. There are, there are all kinds of rules that we have that are, frankly, a little bit, some of them are ridiculous. Um, but we, we have a concern. I have concerns. Some of them are legitimate concerns. Some of them are not legitimate concerns. But uh, I think almost every family uh, has a safety officer in their family, somebody who's obsessed with making sure that things are done right and making sure that things aren't in a dangerous uh, situation. And that is uh, very, very important uh, for some folks and not important for other folks. Um, and, and, you know, it's important that we think about these kinds of things, about safety. And for some people, safety becomes a motto of, of living. It becomes our first priority for everything. I'm not that way about everything, um, but I do tend towards that. That is a tendency of mine. And this is good for some things in life. Like, for example, if you're going to go shooting firearms, you need to know safety rules. You need to abide by safety rules. You do not need to be playing around with those, you know, and I think that's less important in other areas of life. But, you know, we're not always called as Christians or as believers in, in Jesus Christ, we're not always called to live bound up in this concern about, I've got to be super safe. Uh, a lot of us uh, take this idea of safety first to the extreme. In fact, the Bible calls us and tells us there are times we might have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in these moments, we need to ask ourselves a couple questions. First, what is the mission that God has given us worth? Is it worth it? Is God's mission worth our personal safety taking a back seat? Are we willing to risk our own necks? Are we willing to spend and be spent for the sake of the church, for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, for the sake of the cross? Are we willing to take a step and, and risk? Are we willing to risk ourselves for our commander, our leader, our general in the battle? And when we are in warfare, the Bible calls what we are engaging in as spiritual warfare. There are casualties and there are dangers in warfare. The Bible uses that language on purpose. So what is the mission worth? What are we willing to give up for God's work to go on? Are we willing to give up our rights, our comforts, our safety even for the sake of the Lord's work to go on? And the title of the message this morning is Walking Through the Valley, because we are called to be people who walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We are called to be courageous people and take steps that are very difficult to take. I think danger and fear are often connected to each other, aren't they? We are afraid of what we don't know. Uh, When danger is around the corner, uh, we perceive the unknown, we perceive it as being dangerous. And when a person who is filled with the Spirit of God. That is, they take direction from the Spirit of God. They read the Word of God. They obey the Word of God. They submit their lives to God's Spirit, to God's truth. When they obey God's Spirit instead of my desires. If you are a person who is submitted to the Spirit of God, you face danger with a different mindset. You don't come to danger with the same mindset as someone who is consumed 
with their own direction, with their own thinking. Let's go to the Lord in prayer because I think the story we have today outlines for us how we as Christians can be those who walk through the valley and walk through that dangerous place in a way that honors the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we ask your blessings on the passage as we read it this morning, your blessings on my words as I speak today. Lord, give me the, the right way of saying your thoughts so we may embrace your truth, we may obey it, and know that what we're reading today is from you. And I pray that as we live our lives that it would be unquestionable to those around us that we have a confidence in you and that we are not bound by our own fears, but that we walk through the valley with the confidence of the shepherd who leads us. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your care. We thank you for your protection that is above any protection that we can secure for ourselves. And Lord, in this day and age in which we live, it's very dangerous to live in this world. We know that. But Lord, you are the sovereign God, the King. And in these times, it's, it's important for us to remember that, to reflect on that, to meditate on this, so that we do not allow our fears to control what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Walking through the valley is the title of a message. The section that we're in in Acts 21 is a transition time in Paul's ministry. He is coming off of his missionary journeys, and he is headed towards Jerusalem. And much like Jesus, Paul has set his face toward Jerusalem, being led by the Spirit. In fact, we have from Acts 20, he says, Now see, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Everywhere Paul went, in every city Paul went, the Spirit testified to him, saying that where you're going, you're going to face chains and tribulations, difficulties and imprisonment. And yet he still goes, bound and compelled by the Spirit of God to move forward. He's led by the Holy Spirit, I believe, to make his way back to the seat of Jewish leadership there in in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's ministry had shifted away from the Jews toward the Gentiles. As you, as you probably know, you may not, the world, the, the world to the Jews was separated into two categories. You had the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, and then everybody else were the Gentiles. And so Paul's ministry had been to the Greeks or to the Gentile people, and he had been preaching the gospel to them. And this Jewish Messiah who had lived in Galilee, who ministered in, 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 in Israel, had died on a cross and raised from the dead. Paul takes this ministry, Paul takes this message of salvation with, all over the known world. He goes into Asia Minor, he goes into Greece, he goes down to Athens and Corinth. He goes, he goes into the world preaching about this Jewish Messiah, and people are believing in Jesus Christ and are being saved from their sins, and they're being redeemed, and they're being, they're being renewed, born again all over the world. And so Paul is seeing Holy Spirit-filled Gentiles in his ministry. This is a tremendous thing, but now he's walking into a dangerous place, and he knows this because as he goes into Jerusalem, much of the reason for this problem was the ministry shifting, uh, bringing the ministry to now to the Gentiles would cause great problems among the Jewish people. Because that, that, remember, we dealt with this once in Acts chapter 15, where as the Jews and Gentiles did not see eye to eye on a lot of things, did not get along with each other. And he's no, he, he knows he's getting ready to walk into a situation where people do not necessarily care for him. But let's look at this first scene in verse 1. As we see the scene of uh, they're showing love by showing concern. Look at these believers and how they show compassion and concern for him. These companions of, fall, of Paul show this love for him by being concerned about his well-being, even if their concern was contrary to what the Lord had planned for Paul. 
First, we have a travel report from Luke, the writer of Acts, as he accompanies Paul on the journey to Jerusalem. It says, now as it came to pass, when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. And the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship, verse 2, sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, and from there the ship was unloaded, or ship was to unload her cargo. Here he has a, a description of their traveling as he just had met with the Ephesian elders there. He goes straight to Tyre, which is, uh, which is in the northern part of Jerusalem, or northern part of Israel, I should say. Tyre and Sidon would be the north, the Phoenician area there. He's traveled a long way. We have this summary here, and notice the words we there. This indicates that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke, is with Paul along these trips. Look at verse 4. As they arrive there in Tyre, they find some believers. He says, of finding disciples, we stayed there entire seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. These are the disciples who are with them. Verse 5, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children until we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Verse 6, and when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. I want you to notice some significant points. We're not going to belabor this too much, but I want you to notice some significant points happening here. First, these are spirit-filled believers. Do you notice that? And they're spirit-guided disciples of Jesus. It says they spake through the Spirit. These people are not coming to Paul just out of their own desires. They're not saying things that are off the wall. These people are spiritually guided and spiritually obedient believers in Christ and disciples of Jesus. They are followers of Jesus Christ. They are spirit-filled and spirit-guided disciples, and they seek what Paul's best. That is, they seek to to give, to consider Paul. They, They say, please don't go to Jerusalem. Why do they say this? They say this because they know through the Spirit, the Spirit has given them knowledge that there is going to be suffering there for Paul. And they can have concern for his well-being. And they think, please, Paul, don't go and suffer like this. And I think any of us who has someone you love, if you see them going into a time when they're going to be suffering, you say, please don't do this. This is dangerous. And there's a concern that comes from your heart that's a way of showing love. But I want you to notice a tremendous, and to me, a very important point about how this goes forward. It says in verse 5, when they had come to the end of those days, they departed, and they all accompanied us with wives and children. Now, you'll notice that Paul is still going to Jerusalem, but when they come to the end of the days together, they depart, they go their way, and they all, that is all the disciples and believers who had told Paul not to go, go with Paul as he goes towards Jerusalem. Keep reading. With their wives and children until we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. And then when we'd taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship. He says, the people who had asked him not to go, go with him, and they maintained their relationship with Paul, even when he did not listen to what they were saying. You might even say Paul ignored their pleading with him. They loved him, and they went with him, and they prayed for him. They, they did not agree with one another about this, they, yet they showed their love for him and their concern for his safety and their love for him by praying for him and by going with him. And this is a very important point, that there can be disagreement without disunity. Now, these people did not see eye to eye, yet they loved Paul, and they still went and prayed with him. There was concern, and then there was warning from this prophet in Caesarea. It says, when they had finished their voyage entire, verse 7, we came to Ptolemais, greater the brethren. Stay with them one day. 
And the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. It entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Philip, he, he, he's the man who hosts Paul in his own home. And pa- Paul is surrounded by people speaking the words of God. Just look at the list. Philip is an evangelist. Do you remember Philip from earlier in the story of Acts? Philip has made a couple of appearances. He was one of the seven deacons. It says here, one of the seven. That's what it's referring to. Remember, the, the church had a problem where there was the, the Hellenistic widows were not being taken well care of. And so they, they appointed these seven to deal with the distribution of the food for these women and for the, others, and the other needy people in the church. And so, and so here, look what happens. Philip is the one who hosts. Philip, the one speaking the words of God. He also is the one who had the ministry in Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, he goes and does ministry in Samaria, and the most famous story of Philip is his interaction with who? The Ethiopian eunuch on the road, right? Remember him with the scroll of Isaiah. So Philip is speaking the words of truth. He's known for speaking the words of truth. And we have this interesting detail that Philip has some daughters. Here he has four daughters, and these daughters are involved in prophesying, that is, speaking the words of God. And we typically think of prophesying having to do with future, uh, telling about the future. But biblically speaking, prophesying is just speaking God's words. And again, this was something done in the early church prior to the completed canon of Scripture. We have many records of people doing some, some sort of prophesying here, led by the Spirit of God. But we have no record of what these daughters said. We have nothing in the Scripture indicating what they actually we're telling these, these folks, but we know they were prophesying. And while they're at Philip's house, look at what happens in verse 10. He says, we stayed there many days. There was a certain prophet named Agabus who came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt. He bound his own hands and feet. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when they'd heard these things, verse 12, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. So Agabus is, is a prophet in the Old Testament tradition. Okay, He is coming to Paul, and he does something called a prophetic sign. These things, if you read your Old Testament, you actually see these things happening throughout the Old Testament, especially with prophets like Jeremiah and prophets like Ezekiel. Even Isaiah gets involved in this. And what he has is a sign of what Paul is going to experience. And we see Agabus prior to this, to this chapter, in Acts chapter 11, where he predicts a famine is coming. And so he is, again, one of these early church prophets, one of the people of God who is speaking for God. He has a very important role to play. But notice what happens. There in this group, probably in front of some people, Agabus takes Paul's belt. He takes Paul's belt from off his coat and he binds his own hands and feet. So Agabus somehow wraps his hands and wraps his feet. And the commentaries I was reading, they, they, they described it possibly of him having to lie down on the floor, sit down on the floor, and being like hog-tied together, basically, with his hands and his feet all tied up together. And he ties and he wraps himself up, and he makes a scene of himself. He makes it, because this is a little, bit, a little bit distracting. Can you imagine trying to have dinner while this guy's saying, come here, let me have your belt, and I'm going to make a show of things. And you're like, would, Agabus, would you just cut it out? Like, what are you doing? I mean, that's how I would think in these kind of scenes but, or scenarios. But yet Agabus does this as a way of communicating the Holy Spirit's truth to Paul. And by binding himself, he then speaks the words from the Holy Spirit here to Paul. And the people hearing this word, which he says is, the man who owns this belt, the Spirit says, he will be bound like this. And that's not very pleasant. The pe- people there again begin pleading with him, Paul, what are you doing? 
Why are you going to Jerusalem? Can you not stay here? Can you not not go? And notice how Paul responds in verse 13. And here we get to Paul's attitude around this topic, which we've been discussing, this issue of fear and, and, and this issue of safety and this issue of trust. Look at verse 13. Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. So he would not be persuaded. And when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying the will of the Lord be done. If you go back to Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 and 16, Paul had told Ananias, you don't have to turn there, I have it on the screen behind me. Ananias, one of, Paul, one of God's ministers, had gone to Paul and told him what he would face. The Lord said unto him, go to Ananias, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul had an inside track. He had a, a glimpse of what kinds of sufferings he was going to face. He knew from the very beginning the kinds of things he would endure. And Paul's response is, why are you making this so hard? Why are you weeping like this? Why are you breaking my heart? I thought about this, and the best way I can describe it is that Paul has a hard-headed, but not hard-hearted response here. That he's convinced he must go, but he's aware that his decision is having a very emotional impact on the people around him. He's aware that by going, and I think missionaries who go overseas and they see their parents cry and they see their parents struggle with this decision to let their child go overseas to serve the Lord, I think they face a similar kind of thing where the decision is, I need to be committed and convinced that I must go forward, but that doesn't mean that I ignore everyone and just turn into a, a mean person. I need to recognize, I need to be set on what God wants, but still soft in my heart. He says he's ready to suffer. He's ready to die. I'm ready to be bound. I'm ready to be more than bound. I'm ready to die, he says, for the sake of the Lord. And what makes him sad, what breaks his heart, is not that he might be harmed. It's that his friends are hurting for him. He has compassion in his heart. He would not be persuaded, verse 14. He would not allow their pleas to change what he knew he had to do. A couple points of application here as we finish this first point is that, is that Jesus will completely transform your life. Think about how Paul went from a man who hated Christ Jesus a man who was seeking those who were following Jesus to destroy them and to imprison them and to kill them. He goes from that kind of a man after coming into contact with God, with Jesus Christ, after being converted by Jesus, after seeing Christ Jesus himself and, and recognizing that he's, a, he's the sinner who Jesus died for. His life was so transformed that he's willing to go and die for the sake of, the, of anyone. He's willing to go and die for the sake of the one who he hated. Now he loves Jesus that much. Jesus, when you come face to face with Christ, you will be transformed. And the true disciple's main goal is how he might glorify God in everything he does. Be, be willing to die even for the sake of Christ. Secondly, as I mentioned, disagreement should not lead to disunity. Here we have the brothers strongly disagreed with Paul's decision to go forward to Jerusalem. In fact, I struggled quite a bit this, this past week as, I, as I've been studying this passage. To, I don't really honestly know whether or not Paul was right in moving forward like this. It seems to think that he is compelled in the Spirit to go, and yet there are times when the Spirit is through the Spirit they're speaking. So there's some conflict here. I'm not sure whether Paul was right to be so hard-headed in his perspective. I hope one day to talk to Paul about this. 
maybe when we see each other in heaven, I'll be able to, to pull him aside and say, hey, what were you thinking? Was this right? Was it wrong? I don't know. It'd be real, I really wish I knew. Uh, but whatever the case, there was disagreement here, and, but notice that disagreement should not lead to disunity, that they still prayed together, they loved each other, they did not get angry with Paul, they did not get frustrated with Paul, they knelt and they prayed together. And if you're going to follow and serve the Lord, you cannot expect to avoid persecution. We've been really, really blessed in this country uh, and in the Western world for many years that we have avoided a lot of persecution here. We have some, we have little bits of persecution, minor persecutions, uh, things that uh, are problematic for us. Uh, people have lost their jobs for standing up for their faith, people, but, but nothing like has been in the history of Christianity. And, and I'm not uh, foolish enough to think that that will always be this way. I don't know what the Lord has for us, but, but avoiding suffering is not the goal of the Christian's life. Uh, avoiding suffering is not our purpose. Uh, if, you, if you were to hang around us, you might think that's the case, because all of our prayer requests, I'm not, I'm not talking, I do the same thing. I'm not, I'm not talking down about anyone, but a lot of our prayer requests are, Lord, help, I have a headache, or Lord, please help, my, my arms are, are in pain, or my legs hurt, or, I, you know, I have this affliction, or it's a lot of physical things, a lot of difficulties, or Lord, I've been through a tough thing, I need, to, I need deliverance from this, and we're constantly thinking that our, our purpose in life is to escape uh, discomfort, or escape affliction, or escape persecution from others who are being mean to us, or not being kind to us, but, but the Christian's life should not be bound up in avoiding all kinds of suffering. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to glorify our Lord. That is your purpose. And if that means suffering, so be it. We glorify Him. We don't glorify ourselves. So we have to decide now when everything's nice and easy and easy to make the decision because when the going gets tough, it's going to get harder to make the decision. It's not going to get easier. The clarifying moment is now. You make the decision now that you're willing to suffer for Jesus. So when the suffering comes, you don't have to make that decision. It's already been made for you. You've already submitted that to God, and you just go where he's called you. That's what we have to do. You cannot avoid this as a Christian. You should not expect, I should say, to avoid this as a Christian. In fact, Paul talks about this in Philippians 1. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified, made big in my body, whether by life or by death, whether I die or I live, I want Christ to be glorified for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is our attitude. It must be our attitude as Christians. And Paul walked into Jerusalem knowing full well that he was going to suffer. 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, you have followed carefully my doctrine, my teaching, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You can mark it down. So I don't know why we as Christians, and myself included, sometimes come to the idea that we can just avoid suffering, or that's our goal to avoid suffering. It should not be. They showed love here by showing concern. They warned him not to go. They, they showed love and care for him. Now it was time for Paul to show love by his own choices. He showed love by desiring unity. We see that in verse 15. There was unity first through a rejoicing. First, another travel report from verse 15 to 20. He says, after these things, we packed, went to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were 
to lodge. They go to Jerusalem, they find this guy named Nason, who is a, his name means remembering. He's one of the early disciples, it says. They stayed with him there. He's like Barnabas, likely. In fact, he and Barnabas might have been friends. We don't know, but they're both from Cyprus. They're both living in Jerusalem. So there's this, there's this, um, uh, there's this idea that, um, or coming in from here from Caesarea, there's possibility that they would have known each other as early disciples. In verse 17, when they came to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord. Notice the gladly in verse 17, the glorifying God in verse 20. And they said to him, so you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews, thousands of Jews here who, are belie- who have believed, and they're zealous for the law. Notice the joyful, gladly, joyful, gladly, all of these joyful receiving, they're happy to see Paul, which probably shocked Paul when he comes. He, he's expecting to be uh, tied up, hogtied, and he's a little bit surprised by his reception. He's actually received gladly. There's rejoicing here and unity among the believers because they rejoice in what God has done. They're excited. What God has done has been great. God has been saving people all over the world. People have been responding to the gospel message, whether they're in Antioch, whether they're in Corinth and Athens, people have been getting saved and coming to Jesus. What an exciting thing to be in Jerusalem to hear about what God has done. And and then as also another reason that Paul is coming is probably to deliver the gifts from the Asian churches to help out the people there in Jerusalem. But we don't have that explicitly here in, in, in Acts, but it's referenced several other times in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in Romans. This, this is mentioned, and it's probably what's happening here, but Luke doesn't want us to get distracted by that, so he doesn't really mention it at this point. And, and they are glorifying God for what has happened. The ministry of work that he's been involved here has been about five years of Paul's life, A.D. 52 to A.D. 56. A lot of people got saved in five years of Paul's ministry, and then they tell Paul what's going on in Jerusalem. They have good stuff here, People are getting saved. People are coming to Jesus. More and more Jews are getting saved. We have many examples in the Bible so far, the book of Acts, of thousands upon thousands of people getting converted to Jesus from the Jewish faith. But then there's unity here through what I'm calling through deference, because Paul would show deference here in taking steps to clear up a misunderstanding that had come upon the Jews in Jerusalem. So far, so good, but then things take a turn in verse 21. They say, but... But these, they, the Jews who are zealously deserving the, preserving the law, zealously uh, uh, desiring to follow the law, these Jews have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. Those are the, the Jews in the diaspora, the Jews who are the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews who are not in Jerusalem, the Jews who are among the Gentiles. You, you're teaching them, Paul, to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? What do we do then? Or what should you do then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. There are rumors floating around, Paul. We've been informed. Now, there's no idea who did the informing. We don't know. But the rumors have made their way to Jerusalem. And these rumors were saying that, that Paul was actually teaching people to forsake Moses. That is, forsake the Old Testament. To, to throw away the law that they ought not, that they should not, that they, they were wrong in circumcising their children, or that they, were not, that they should no longer live according to the customs and the culture of the Jews. In other words, they're telling Paul, Paul, we here out there, while you've been traveling, you've been undermining 
the Jewish way of life. And this is a very serious charge, and it's an untrue charge for what Paul has been preaching. Now, some of what they said was correct in a way, and some of what they said was very wrong. Obviously, Paul was not forbidding circumcision or commanding people to break the law. He was teaching them how they ought to live in understanding with Jews and Gentiles, how they could live in a unified church. We see these discussions in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 and in other passages where he talks about eating meat offered to idols and all of those different discussions. That's what's the background for this. So Paul was telling the Gentiles that coming to God through Jesus Christ, they were just not required to be a Jew first. That is because the most wonderful truth in all the Bible, that salvation is by grace through faith, not by the keeping of the law. Praise God for that that we have salvation today by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved us not by any works which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You cannot keep the law enough to go to heaven, period. You are not righteous enough. You're not holy enough. Not one of us could do enough good things in order to go to heaven. That's the point of all of this. And Paul was not preaching that they should break the law, therefore. He was preaching that Christ had fulfilled the law and that we have righteousness through Jesus. So Paul's message was clear. Paul's message was the gospel. It is the inspired word of God that we have. Yet they did not hear that. They were hearing rumors. So notice their solution for Paul. It says in verse 23, They say, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads, that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Okay, briefly, there's about four guys who who apparently have taken a kind of Nazarite vow, and, and, and what happens here is they're saying, we want you to demonstrate your Jewish piety, your Jewish uh, fidelity to the Jewish faith by going with these men who have purified themselves, being purified yourself, and then offering a sum of money to pay for their vows that they can then shave their heads and be done with their vows. It was a very typical thing that was done in the Jewish culture at this time. But notice the very last point of verse 24. The reason for this, they say, is so that everyone will know the things of which they were informed concerning you were nothing. The reason for doing this was to answer the objections from those who were spreading rumors about Paul's teachings. And notice that the group who's speaking to him is not James, the pastor of Jerusalem. It's they said to him. It's this this group of Jewish leaders there. They're affirming their stance. They're stating what the Jewish and Gentile believers, how they should interact with each other, starting in verse 25. He says, concerning the Gentiles who believe. This is the same information that we've already read once in Acts 15. He says, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. The issue they have is not with the Gentiles not participating in the the law. The issue they have is that they believe that by the Gentiles not participating in the law, that Paul is now telling the Jews that they don't have to participate in the law either. And they should, he says, this is a problem. 
Uh, but if you notice these laws, these are things that would prohibit or cause great problems of fellowship with other Jewish believers. So I'm not going to get into all the details here, but basically the idea of these ritual things like drinking blood and, and, and eating strangled things would have caused major conflict at the table and fellowship. And the idea was that there should be no barriers for fellowship among Jews and Gentiles in the in the early church. And Paul agrees. What we see next is amazing. Paul agrees to take these men in the Jew- and to do what the Jewish leaders asked. In verse 26, Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering would be made for each one of them. He shows deference. I don't think he had to do this, but he did. He, he desired to have unity through deference. And honestly, the, the scripture does not tell us whether Paul was right in doing this. Paul, Paul could have just been trying to be kind and trying to show deference. It also is possible that Paul was getting caught up in fear of men, that he was afraid of what people were saying about him, and he thought he had to do something to show them that he was, he was doing the right thing. And I, I think that's possible in Galatians chapter 1. He talks about this fear. He says, for do I persuade men or God, or should I seek to please men? For if I please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is the problem, is when you get caught up trying to make other people happy instead of trying to please God, you get yourself in trouble. And you get yourself in sticky situations. And again, I'm not sure. It's amazing to me that in the first scene, Paul refuses to budge. He is on his way to Jerusalem. But here, so quickly, Paul gives in. He quickly does exactly adapts. He changes so he can promote unity. And whether that was right or wrong, I'm not 100% sure. But nextly, we see, next, we see he shows confidence, even though he was treated unfairly. In this last scene of the story, we see that he has unfair accusations from wicked men. And even though Paul sought to clear the air and show deference, it did not matter. Because we have Jews from Asia where he had just been preaching. They come in from, from, these, from these religious scenes and they come in to make a big scene. These are, these are not the same men who gave him the instruction in the first place. This was a different group. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, the temple. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, verse 29 tells us that he had not brought Greeks into the holy of holies. He says they had previously seen Trophimus, an Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And so they stir up the crowd. They say, this man is teaching people against the law. This man is teaching people against the temple. In fact, he has defiled the temple by bringing in a non-Jew, a Greek. And I don't know if you remember, but several weeks ago, as I went through Acts 15, we talked about Antiochus IV, one of the Greek, uh, Greek emperors who did great destruction to the Jewish people and hated the Jewish people and slaughtered the Jewish people and forbade them from circumcising their children. So this was a raw nerve. This is not just something that wouldn't have made a big deal. This is a big deal. And it causes an uproar. These are unfair accusations. This is not what Paul had done. These are unfair accusations from wicked men who wanted violence against Paul. Yet Paul, even though this showed confidence, he continued to move forward. Look at verse 30. He had unfair treatment from a wicked mob. It says, all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. They, they, they drag him out so they can do harm to him because they cannot harm him in the temple. And this leads me to think this was some kind of coordinated attack against Paul. And then all of a sudden, the news makes its way to the Roman civil authorities, verse 31. 
As they were seeking to kill him, news came from the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came near, took him, and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. Remarkably, Paul is once again saved by a civic authority, the commander of the garrison runs down there, removes Paul from certain death of beating. And he tries to figure out what's going on. And here the prophetic words of Agabus are fulfilled. Paul has been handed over from the Jews to the civil authorities, and he has been bound hand and foot with chains. Verse 34, and some among the multitude cried out one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, He commanded him to be taken into the barracks, and when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob from the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. He was unable to figure out what was happening. Too much chaos. It's so violent, it's so dangerous, and I I think that Luke was there. As you read this story, you can see the, the, the personal touch that Luke is giving here from his eyewitness account. He even gives us details about wanting to get into this, this barracks, this place where they could hold him, and they couldn't, even, they couldn't get him up the steps. They had to carry him up the steps. Like Luke is right there watching all of this unfold before him. All the, while, all the while, Paul acted confidently even though he was treated unfairly, which we'll see next time as we look at the next part of this message, which is Paul's speech to these people. Paul walked into the valley of the shadow of death because he had confidence in God. Paul Paul knew where he stood with the Lord because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He knew if he died in that moment, in that chaos, in that mob, if he was trampled to death, beaten to death by this nameless, faceless mob, he knew that he would be with Jesus. He had confidence in where he stood with God. And a proper view of God and a proper view of yourself gives you courage not only to walk into the valley of the shadow of death, it gives you courage to not fear because God's promises are stronger than the chaos that men can make. And when we lean on God's promises, you can go into chaos being completely confident that the God who holds you made the universe. We live and we serve a God who loves us so much and cares for us so much that we can have confidence. And when we show fear in the valley of the shadow of death, what does that say about what we think about our God? When we are fearful, what does it show about our confidence in Him? Quick application questions here at the end. Do you have the confidence that comes from a right relationship with God. I don't want to assume that every one of you here today know Jesus as your Savior. There might be people here, it might be a dozen, who've never bowed their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and received the gift of salvation, believing in their heart that Christ Jesus died for them, was buried, and rose again. And the Bible says, if you call in the name of the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved, and that by believing you have life in his name. That, that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. It's a promise. You can take it to heaven. And the Bible tells us that confidence that we have in him comes from a right relationship with God. Having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. I wonder, do you have that confidence? If you're shaking in your boots, if you are very, uh, very, very um, uh, cowardly about these things, perhaps you don't have that confidence. Secondly, do you have courage that comes from a clear conscience before God? 
I wonder if so much of the weakness and so much of the cowardice of our Christians today comes from the fact that we are not right with God, and we don't, haven't gotten used to leaning on God, haven't gotten used to trusting in the Lord, and, and are really quite afraid of what might happen because we're not, we're being chastened by God. We don't have a clear conscience with God. It, it, there are a dozen things that are wrong with us in our relationship with God that need to be confessed, and we haven't confessed them. And do you know the good shepherd who promises to protect you? Do you know him? How, how well do you know him? That's why we began with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I mean, you've heard this psalm so many times in your life. You probably memorized it as a kindergartner if you grew up in church. But do you, do you understand what he's saying? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm so strong? No, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And for my enemies, you prepare a table. The presence of my, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And he ends with, with eternities. As surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, do you have confidence through the valley of the shadow of death? No matter where God has called you, we walk that confidence knowing the great shepherd who loves you. Father, we ask today as we've come before you now and have been looking at your word, we ask that you please allow your spirit free reign in our hearts. If there's, there are hearts in this room, there are people who have no clear conscience with you. They have many things they need to confess. Father, bring these up to our minds that we may clear the deck, that we may be right before you. There's so much freedom that comes from a clear conscience and being, being right before you. Let us, Lord, now confess these things and, and be right with you. And Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know you as the good shepherd, who is the great king who saved them from their sins, if they are not confident of where they would be if they died, that is why they are fearful of death. I pray, God, that today they would get that settled once and for all. They would know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Savior. Father, wherever we need to be, I pray that you would please open up our hearts, examine us, and may we be obedient to you in Jesus' name. Amen.